Welcome to another blood-curdling episode of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This is the second part of the horrific tale of Marion Parker, the little girl who was kidnapped by one of the most depraved killers in L.A. history. Don't listen to this episode unless you've heard episode 80 first. Although I'll warn you, it's going to be just as tough to take as this one is, especially if you're a parent. We're in the midst of our haunted Hollywood season of the podcast, where each episode focuses on the dark side of Southern California, the movie capital of the world. Where it's supposed to be all palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars, it's the place where dreams come true and where they often come to die. The murder chronicled in episodes 80 and 81 is another of those crimes that it seems impossible to believe that it happened. It's so twisted and so evil that you start to question the humanity that exists in all of us. It's the second part of Marion's story, another gruesome episode in this season about a city of fallen angels. The season started with episode 70 and will end at some point, but... I don't know when. Each episode delves into Hollywood crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. But remember that the episodes in the season may not be suitable for all listeners, especially this one. So listen at your own risk. Don't answer the telephone. Don't get into cars with strange men or answer any ransom letters as we jump into the next episode of American Hauntings. When LAPD detective George Contreras showed up at the ransom drop on that cold December night when Marion Parker's severed body was discovered, he found Perry Parker still standing next to his car in anguish. He was, the detective said, too stunned to cry. I walked up to him and I asked him where his little girl was, and Contreras later said, there she is, sitting in the car. Go and look at her. God bless her little heart. And he couldn't talk anymore, and this friend of his had to take him away. So I immediately went over to the car and the little girl was sitting there with her little head leaned over to the right. And the first thing that attracted my attention was the thread that was fashioned over each eyelid and across the forehead and right back over the head and down around the neck. When the coroner came, I carried the body out of the automobile and put it in the wagon. We came on down to the morgue with it. Dr. A.F. Wagner was waiting to perform the first phase of the autopsy with LA Times photographer George Watson on hand to photograph the corpse. Dr. Wagner had no difficulty identifying the body. He'd left next door to the Parker family for the last four years. In his report, he described the damage done to Marion's body, the severed limbs, the sewn open eyes, and the cuts and marks left on her body. He also found that bloody towels had been stuffed into the body as well as a man's shirt. Well, they didn't offer any clues, at least at first. Meanwhile, the killer was busy looking for supper. He dropped off his car at 9th and Grand and walked over to the Layton Cafe on Broadway between 5th and 6th Streets. He used one of the $20 bills that Perry Parker had given him to pay for his food. On a whim, he spoke to the cashier when he was leaving the diner. You'd be surprised if you knew who I was, he said. He later told detectives that he wished he could have seen the girl's face when she found out. And he added, I'll bet she got a thrill. His hunger satisfied, the killer left his car in a public lot and caught a streetcar back to his apartment where he promptly went to sleep. 
A short time later, a patrolman spotted the Roadster, which matched the description of the car used in the ransom drop, and he questioned the parking lot attendant. He was told that the driver, a young, dark-haired man, had promised to return for the car on Sunday. Fingerprints that were lifted from the windshield turned out to be a match for those on the ransom notes. Swearing members of the press to secrecy, detectives staked out the car and waited for the suspect to return for it. Within hours of the body's discovery, the people of Los Angeles were gripped with terror. Their fears were inflamed by the sensational newspaper headlines and the melodramatic radio broadcasts. The following day, parents kept their children home from school, while the police spread the word to the public, appealing to them to watch out for, quote, suspicious characters, and to immediately contact the authorities if they saw anything unusual. Things were bad, but there was worse to come. William Britton was miles away from his home in suburban Downey, strolling through Elysian Park in Chavez Canyon, which is now home to the Los Angeles Dodgers, when he discovered four newspaper-wrapped parcels scattered along the road. Curious, he opened one of them and found a small human arm severed at the elbow. Startled, he rushed to call the police. When detectives arrived, they found the other parcels containing a second arm and two lower legs. About an hour later and 150 yards east, two boys hiking in the woods found another package lying in a gully where it had rolled after it had been tossed from the window of the killer's automobile. Wrapped in more stained newspaper was the pitiful remainder of Marion's body, truncated at the waist and the knees. Investigators found tire tracks on the muddy shoulder there when the killer had pulled over to the side. They made a cast which matched the tires of the roadster that was then under watch in the parking lot at 9th and Grand. So far, the young man had not returned to claim it. That Sunday morning, the police were back at Manhattan Place. A woman named Margaret Root had opened a suitcase standing in the gutter in front of her house, a block from the spot where Marion's body had been dumped by the fox. The suitcase was cheaply made, imitation leather. Inside it, police found one clean towel, two bloody newspapers, a writing tablet that appeared to match the two notes written by Marion to her father, and a spool of black thread that was identical to the stitching in Marion's eyelids. As words of the murder spread, false leads poured into the police. Men who even remotely resembled the kidnapper were being pulled over, arrested, and a few were even beaten up by well-meaning citizens. While the cops were chasing leads, reward money began pouring in from the LA City Council, radio stations, movie studios, and even from popular evangelist Amy Simple McPherson. The reward fund eventually reached nearly $100,000. Well-wishers and curiosity seekers flocked to the Parker home. Some wanted to help in any way they could, sharing the crushing grief of the family, while others just wanted to try and be part of the most sensational murder case of the moment. Late on Monday afternoon, Mr. Parker asked the police to rope off the block surrounding his home. More than 25,000 people had gathered on the street, and the constant voices, the car engines, and the honking horns were fraying Mrs. Parker's already jangled nerves. While all of this was taking place, the man the police were looking for was getting ready to leave town. He had taken a streetcar to Hollywood Boulevard and Western Avenue to look for a car that would get him on the road. He decided not to return to the stolen roadster, unaware it was being watched by the police, and carjacked a man named Frank Peck and stole his Hudson Coupe. The killer left Los Angeles on Ventura Boulevard, drove overnight, and ended up in San Francisco. He checked into the Herald Hotel, registering as Edward J. King of Seattle. 
on Monday afternoon, and he spent the night in room 402. He only planned to stay one night, and then he would head north. Well, he slept well that night, not knowing that by now the police knew his name, but they still had no idea where to find him. On Monday, a coroner's jury convened to examine Marion's case. Dr. Wagner, the first of three witnesses, caused an uproar in the hearing room when he told the panel he was unable to determine the child's specific time of death. In other words, quote, I cannot say whether she was killed before her body was so horribly mutilated. There was no evidence of chloroform or any other anesthetic being used, which left the panel to only imagine what kind of horror that Marion had experienced. A private funeral was held for Marion that same afternoon at Forest Lawn's Little Church of Flowers in Glendale. After the closed casket service ended at 5 p.m., Marion's remains were cremated. And the search for the killer continued. The police were working around the clock. They were spread thin, attempting to search everywhere at once. Dozens of men were arrested, questioned, and then set free. Reward money kept pouring in, leading to more useless leads, crank calls, and crackpots. Jake Bruce Goddard, president of the Cooperative Apartment and Hotel Owners Association of Southern California, appealed to all landlords to aid in the search for the killer by scrutinizing their tenants and searching their apartments if possible. But in the middle of all the madness, detectives were making progress. A nationwide broadcast description of the roaster that had been used in the kidnapping put detectives in touch with its owner, a doctor from Kansas City, and his description of the thief matched that of Marion's killer. Fingerprints inside of the car got a hit. They belonged to William Edward Hickman, age 19, who had been arrested the previous June. He was also a suspect in a robbery back in November, but that wasn't all. One of the blood-stained towels that were discovered at the crime scene, stuffed in the cheap imitation leather suitcase, was marked with the name Bellevue Arms Apartments, which were located at 1170 Bellevue Avenue. Detectives hurried to the apartment building and began questioning the residents. One of the tenants, who had registered under a false name, was William Hickman. The previous Saturday night, he was seen carrying a suitcase and several bundles to an automobile parked near the building's rear entrance. By the time the detectives discovered the link between the building where he lived and the crime scene, Hickman had already skipped town. By the time that he checked out of the Herald Hotel in San Francisco on Tuesday morning, he was already a hunted man. The self-proclaimed fox and mastermind had failed to wipe the fingerprints from the car used to commit his crime before he abandoned it on Saturday night. Fingerprints connected him to other recent offenses, including a November 27th robbery at Jackson's Pharmacy on Sunset Boulevard. The owner, Katie Jackson, identified his photograph as the robber who came into the store looking for chloroform and ether. He'd forced Jackson to lie on the floor while he ransacked the pharmacy. Failing to find ether, he took $80 and some sleeping pills. Hickman was also identified by two other pharmacists who were also robbed. On December 5th, he took chloroform, ether, and $156 from the two stores. It was recalled that Hickman was driving the stolen car at the time. On Monday, the police returned to the Bellevue Arms Apartments and searched apartment 315, where Hickman had been living. In his haste to leave, he'd left his breakfast on the table, complete with fingerprints on a milk bottle and a sugar bowl. The prints matched those in the car and on his booking card from an arrest the previous June. 
Amid the clutter of the place, golf balls and clubs, a portable phonograph, scattered clothing, and partially burned letters, detectives found broken shells of Brazil nuts and matched them to fragments that were retrieved from the pockets of Marion's dress. An arrest warrant was issued for William Edward Hickman on Monday evening, and he was formally charged with kidnapping and murder by the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office on Tuesday, December 20th. Municipal Judge Baird signed a bench warrant for his arrest to facilitate extradition if Hickman was captured outside of California. Once the charges became public, reporters dug into Hickman's past and found the information about his arrest back in June of 1927. He'd been charged with forgery while employed at the bank where Perry Parker worked as the personnel officer. Reporters now had a link between the Parkers and the man who'd committed the horrific crime. Well, Perry Parker was stunned, but not completely surprised when he learned of the killer's identity. He told the police he believed Hickman had been a troubled young man, but Perry Parker had no way of knowing that William Hickman had already killed at least one person and perhaps several more when he started working at the bank. After Hickman's arrest in June, he entered a guilty charge for forgery, but because he lied about his age, the case was heard in juvenile court. Hickman was placed on probation, which Perry Parker had argued against, and placed in his mother's custody. The two of them had gone back to Kansas City, where they had been living before Hickman left home. A few months later, the news that Hickman was wanted for murder stunned his mother and his Kansas City acquaintances. Hickman was widely described as a good boy who attended church regularly and was a leader in Sunday school activities. His former principal called him mild-mannered and popular. He got good grades, was elected to the student council three years in a row. He served as the vice president of his senior class in 1926, was also president of the school's chapter of the National Honor Society, president of the Central Webster Club, president of the Central Classics Club, a member of the debate team, business manager of the school paper, literary editor of the school yearbook, and was voted by his peers as the school's, quote, best boy orator. But there was a monster lurking under Hickman's quiet facade. Once Hickman was identified as Marion's killer, sightings came in from all over the city, throughout California and beyond. By this time, 12,000 members of the American Legion had mobilized in Southern California and were prepared to join in the search. Hickman fever was spreading nationwide. He was everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. San Francisco police, where Hickman actually was, were on alert Monday night after a man reported seeing Hickman in a parked car. Meanwhile, patrons at the local post office reported Hickman, or someone who looked just like him, mailing off a package to Kansas City. Farther north, not far from the Oregon state line, a waitress swore she had served the fugitive on Monday night. In the other direction to the south, California authorities urged Mexican police to keep an eye out for the kidnapper, who they were sure was heading south of the border. Baja California Governor Albiardo Rodriguez deputized a special force of volunteers to patrol 150 miles of border around the clock, scouring the desert for Hickman. Elsewhere, police were on alert from Denver to Portland, to Kansas City, and to Hartford, Arkansas, where Hickman had been born. But despite thousands of watchful eyes, there was no sign of him anywhere. After checking out of his hotel in San Francisco, Hickman went north, bound for Seattle. He knew that the police would be looking for a young man traveling alone, so he began looking for company. He found his first passenger thumbing rides outside of Davis, east of Sacramento, and drove the man as far as Redding, where they separated after having supper in a coffee shop. 
The other patrons were talking about the reward being offered for Marion Parker's killer, but never glanced in Hickman's direction. The young man was made nervous by the conversation, though, and rushed through his meal, anxious to be on his way. He continued to do this as he crossed the Oregon state line, picking up hitchhikers and then dropping them off. At one point, Hickman and two passengers were stopped by a police roadblock, but officers, looking for one man and not three fellows traveling together, waved them through. He dropped off the two young men the next day, and one of them spotted a newspaper with Hickman's face on the front page and called the police. A description was broadcast of the stolen Hudson and its California license number, and officers all over the region went on alert. But it was too late. Hickman was gone. He'd already crossed into Washington. He made it to Seattle, and his first stop was a movie theater. He used one of the $20 gold certificates from the ransom money to buy his ticket, pocketing the change. Later, chilled by the Seattle weather, he went in search of a men's clothing store where he could buy a warmer outfit. He selected a hat, gloves, and some thermal underwear. The bill came to $5, and instead of using the change from the movie theater, he produced number 69 of the 75 gold certificates that Perry Parker had given to his daughter's kidnapper. As Hickman walked back to his car, his paranoia kicked into high gear. He was sure that the sales clerk had recognized him. He spotted a newsboy walking behind him and imagined he was in pursuit. He hurried to the Hudson and drove off as quickly as traffic would allow. But the police were looking for him, thanks to the call from the hitchhikers he dropped off. Roadblocks were set up all around the city, but it was too late. Hickman was already gone. Hickman slipped out of Seattle and doubled back toward Oregon. He believed the manhunt would be concentrated to the north. The police had tracked him this far, he thought, so they must think he was heading to Canada. He would outfox them by going backwards. However, in Kent, Washington, the mastermind used another ransom bill, which the police used to map his escape route. Hickman was finally caught thanks to some quick thinking on the part of a Los Angeles newsman and an old-fashioned Oregon lawman. Early on Thursday morning, Walter Clausen, the L.A. bureau chief for the Associated Press and a part-time captain in the U.S. Army's Reserve's Military Intelligence Department, came up with an idea. He didn't know where Hickman was exactly, but he'd been up most of the night collating reports from Washington and Oregon, plotting the strange erratic progress of Hickman's Hudson sedan. Now it was snowing in northern Washington, which meant the roads and passes into Canada would be closed. Clausen believed that Hickman might double back instead of waiting out the storm, and he was right, although snow had nothing to do with Hickman's decision. Excited at the prospect of participating in the manhunt, even at a distance, Clausen wired all Associated Press subscribers in the Pacific Northwest an urgent description of the stolen car, complete with the license plates. Near lunchtime, Pendleton Police Chief Tom Gurdane received an anxious telephone call from Parker Brannan, the editor at the local East Oregonian newspaper. There was something on the wire he needed to see. Gurdane walked over to the newspaper office. The big, rugged man was the kind of old-fashioned peace officer that had been assigned to the old Oregon Trail for decades. He spoke quietly, put up with no nonsense, and kept busy, even in a relatively quiet town like Pendleton. He was just about to make the biggest arrest in his career. On the way, Gurdane met Buck Llewellyn of the State Highway Patrol and asked him to tag along. The newspaper editor met them in the lobby and began talking fast. Hickman had been spotted. He had used a ransom bill to pay for gas in Arlington, just 60 miles west of Pendleton, and was heading east toward Pendleton on a state highway that paralleled the Umatilla River. 
With Llewellyn driving, the two lawmen left in a state patrol car. Llewellyn parked his cruiser on the dirt shoulder of the road, positioned so they could see the next curve ahead. Well, they didn't have to wait long before the green Hudson came into view. The driver had dark hair and was wearing sunglasses, even though the day was overcast and gray. Gurdane was convinced it was William Hickman. The Hudson sped past them, and the lawmen followed in pursuit. When the other car picked up speed, Llewellyn reached over and turned on the siren. The pursuit, which reporters later referred to as a breakneck chase, only lasted about two minutes. Hickman pulled over about a mile and a half down the road. Gurdane and Llewellyn jumped out and approached the car with guns drawn. Gurdane was on the driver's side and Llewellyn walked up on the right. Hickman rolled down his window and smiled up at Gurdane. Was I speeding, he asked. Gurdane ignored him. What's your name? Hickman never missed a beat. He knew the name of the car's real owner and he offered it. My name's Peck, he replied. Where are you from? Hickman quickly answered, Seattle, I've been attending college over there and I'm going to visit my mother. Gurdane later told reporters, I covered him with my gun and opened the door with my left hand and told him to get out. When he started to get out, a 45 automatic dropped to the running board. When Gurdane asked him what he was doing with the gun, Hickman said it was customary to carry one when traveling. Well, you don't need to keep it between your knees. Gurdane snapped. Hickman was placed into custody and searched by the lawman. A glance down past the steering wheel revealed a sawed-off shotgun lying on the floorboard. Llewellyn searched him and pulled one of the crumpled $20 gold certificates from Hickman's pocket. Llewellyn then searched the car, which contained another $1,400 in bills. Hickman glanced at the money in the policeman's hands and then shrugged to the officers. Well, he said, I guess it's all over. As the handcuffs were snapped over Hickman's wrists, he let out a hysterical bray of laughter. The cops later reported they assumed the young man was nuts. <laughs> they were probably right. Despite all the claims from Hickman's past about what a good boy he was, there was a long history of mental illness in his family. When Hickman was a baby, his mother attempted suicide and spent three years at the state lunatic asylum in Little Rock, Arkansas. After high school, he began getting into trouble. He and a friend named Welby Hunt robbed a candy store and got away with $70. After that, believing he was so smart he'd never get caught, he took a gun, a car, and some money and convinced Hunt they should go to California. They left in December 1926, and Hickman told his mother he was going to try to get into the movie business. Well, they got into the armed robbery business instead. On Christmas Eve, they robbed a pharmacy that ended with a police officer named DJ Oliver wounded and the owner of the store dead. They escaped without any cash. Looking for work, Hickman got a job in January 1927 as a page for the First National Trust and Savings Bank, where Perry Parker was employed. Parker's job was such that he likely would have never become acquainted with Hickman until Ed was caught forging checks. After being put on probation, Hickman returned to Kansas City and spent six weeks in the fall of 1927 working as an usher at a movie theater. It was as close to the Hollywood movie business as he would ever get. He was eventually fired after the manager discovered he was spending most of his time sneaking in to watch the movies. In Kansas City, Hickman resumed his criminal activities. In October, he stole a car belonging to a traveling salesman and drove it all the way to Chicago. On October 11, 1927, a man whose description matched Hickman strangled a young girl in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hickman went on to Michigan, then Pennsylvania. In Chester, Pennsylvania, on October 29, 1927, a gas station manager named James Clare was shot and killed during a robbery by a man whose description sounded an awful lot 
like Hickman's. Unbelievably, in addition to committing crimes, Hickman did some sightseeing while he was on his trip. He drove to Gettysburg and took a tour of the battlefield. He drove through Maryland into Washington, D.C. and spent a short time in New York before seeing West Virginia and Ohio. It was in Ohio that he successfully robbed three stores in a mere half-hour time frame. By that time, he had returned to Kansas City with his stolen automobile. He had driven more than 4,000 miles and had committed several more petty robberies. The high school scholar, athlete, and good boy had become an experienced criminal. On November 7, 1927, Hickman stole a Chrysler Roadster and returned to Los Angeles, where he robbed a pharmacy of $30. It was then that he settled into the apartment at the Bellevue Arms and tried to decide what he wanted to do next. On Thanksgiving Day, November 23, 1927, Hickman was taking a drive down to San Diego when he met a couple that needed a lift to Los Angeles. Hickman picked them up and the three became friendly. They were so friendly, in fact, that the man and Hickman made plans to meet three days later and knock over a few stores for some cash. They robbed a pharmacy on November 27th and two more pharmacies on December 5th. Along with the money, Hickman took sleeping tablets and chloroform. When his accomplice asked why he needed these things, Hickman explained he had an idea about committing a bigger crime that would earn him some real money. He wanted to kidnap a child for ransom, he said. That's where the real money is. Word quickly spread about Hickman's arrest. A local grand jury quickly returned an indictment against him for kidnapping and murder. Extradition papers to California were being rushed through the system. Chief Detective George Contreras flew to Oregon the next morning. He took along Detectives H.G. Taylor and E.M. Harmon to help get the prisoner back to Los Angeles. The extra guards were assigned to prevent Hickman from being, quote, lynched by an angry mob of citizens. Well, Hickman didn't seem to care one way or the other. After the indictment, Hickman was told he had been named as the murderer of Marion Parker. His first impulse was to laugh out loud, startling everyone in the room. Reporters got their chance to ask questions, but Hickman refused to answer most of them. When asked to pose for a photograph flanked by the two lawmen that brought him in, he asked, what should I look like, a crook? On Christmas Eve, Oregon Governor I.L. Patterson signed the extradition papers that would return the prisoner to L.A. Dixon's attorney Keyes from L.A. had traveled to Oregon and had the privilege of telling Hickman about his impending return to Los Angeles, charged with a death penalty offense. When he did, Hickman flew into a frenzy, wailing and moaning on the floor of his cell, screaming that he didn't kill Marion. It may have been a ploy that Hickman was making for an insanity defense, or reality could have finally started settling in, making him realize he really was on his way to the gallows. Either way, he was getting no sympathy from the DA, the guards, or from his fellow prisoners. Later that night, Hickman made two rather foolish suicide attempts. He began with a headfirst dive from his top bunk onto the floor. For that, he got a headache and a bump on his head, but nothing more. Next, he tied a handkerchief around his throat and tried to hang himself from a beam in his cell. Hearing a loud groan, several guards rushed to the cell. He was hanging limp, but several minutes later, they'd revived him. Chief of Detectives Herman Klein was disgusted. 
Listen, Hickman, he growled. Are you going to be a yellow cur or are you going to brace up and come along on this trip like a man? Hickman's only reply was a low, keening moan. Klein shook his head and ordered his men to take him away. It was difficult to determine if these were actual attempts at suicide or part of Hickman's plan to escape the noose by pretending to be insane. Of course, there is a certain amount of comic irony to Hickman attempting to commit suicide by strangulation in order to avoid being hanged. Anyway, it was just past daylight on December 25th when Hickman was finally loaded on the Union Pacific's Cascade Limited train to Los Angeles. He was surrounded by Chief Pline, two detectives, a couple of guards, and District Attorney Asa Keys. Bored or feeling guilty, he told the DA he was ready to talk. I want to tell the whole story, he said. Hickman finally admitted to the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. In November, he had rented the apartment at the Bellevue Arms under the assumed name of Donald Evans. But he didn't come up with plans for the kidnapping until December 12th. He'd scouted the Parker home, tried to lure the girls out of the streetcar, lied to Mary Holt, and convinced her to take Marion out of school. He talked about the letters, and mostly he talked about Marion. He described her behavior and how he convinced her that she wouldn't be hurt. He drove her around in his car, ate with her, took her to the movies, and actually shared a lot of laughs with her, which makes what he eventually did to her much, much worse. He claimed that he actually planned to return her until the police followed Parker to the first ransom drop, but this is undoubtedly a lie. On the day he planned the last letters, he tied Mary into a chair and told her he was leaving, but then he said, quote, my intention to murder completely gripped me. Hickman went into the kitchen and picked up a rolling pin that he was going to hit her with, but then he changed his mind. He took a dish towel instead. He placed it around Marion's neck and pulled it around her throat using all of his strength to choke her to death. He then washed his face, combed his hair, and straightened his clothing and went to the nearest drugstore where he purchased rouge, lipstick, and face powder. He told the sales girl he was buying the cosmetics for his sister. He then casually walked back to the apartment and began the most gruesome aspects of the crime. Okay, I'm going to stop right here, and this is a warning to all of our listeners. If you are squeamish or easily unnerved, you are going to want to skip this part. Hit the uh, little 30-second button on your player if you're listening on your iPhone and skip ahead because this is going to get bad. He stripped off Marion's clothing, carried her body into the bathroom, and laid her face down in the bathtub with her head over the drain. With a large butcher's knife from the kitchen, he slit her throat, and then he turned on the water in the tub. As the blood drained from her body, he went to the refrigerator and made a snack of sardines and crackers. He slowly ate as the water did its work. A little while later, he returned to the bathroom. He stripped down to his undershorts and went to work on the corpse using a set of what he called, quote, an improvised surgical instruments, meaning the butcher's knife, a pocket knife, a kitchen fork, an ice pick, and a package of razors. He then cut her arms at the elbows and her legs at the knees. Then he cut an opening in the abdomen, removing the viscera. The odor from the entrails made him sick to his stomach, and he vomited into the toilet bowl. Fighting his nausea, he went into the living room and stood by the open window for a few minutes. After his stomach had settled, he went back to the bathroom and wrapped the viscera in a thick newspaper bundle. The body now had to be butchered. 
He began sawing through the dead girl's backbone, and as he did, the upper portion of the body began jerking around violently, nearly flailing out of the tub. The kidnapper was momentarily shocked, but had spent time working in a slaughterhouse and knew how chickens behaved after being decapitated. This is all from his confession, by the way, and decided the reaction had something to do with the spinal cord being severed. So he ignored it. After the blood was wiped from the skin and washed from the hair, the killer lifted the torso from the tub and wiped it dry. He then gathered every towel he had in the apartment and stuffed them into the cavity of the corpse. He needed it to remain rigid. Satisfied, he gently cradled the head to protect it from being disconnected and carried the torso into the living room and placed it upright on the couch. The killer wrapped her severed limbs in newspaper and placed them next to the body. As he did so, Marion's glassy, dead eyes seemed to watch him as he walked in and out of the room. On his hands and knees, he scrubbed the bathroom floor, washed out the tub, and took a warm bath. Once he was dressed, he picked up the cosmetics and applied the rouge lipstick and powder to the dead girl's face. He slipped her school dress over the head and torso, carefully pinning it so it would remain in place and cover the wound on the throat. As a final touch, he sewed open her eyelids, then brushed and fixed Marion's hair into a ponytail, held in place with a hair ribbon, tied in a neat bow. The twisted creation, which hours later would be revealed to the horror of Perry Parker, was placed in a suitcase, which was then carried to a shelf in the dressing room while Hickman finished cleaning up the bloody mess that he'd made. He gathered all the parts of Marion's body and took them to his car, which he had parked at the side entrance. He set off for Elysian Park, where he scattered the limbs and the girl's internal organs. A half hour later, he continued his grim mission. He took the suitcase with the upper section of the corpse and drove to 6th Street and Western Avenue. He called Mr. Parker and arranged to meet him. He waited and then drove around the neighborhood to make sure that no police cars were prowling the nearby streets. When he decided that he was safe, he took the girl's torso from the suitcase, propped it up on the seat of his car, and bundled the blanket around her so that she would not fall over. Her eyes had been stitched open so it would look as if she were alive. After the ransom meeting, collecting the money and dumping the body next to the road, he went to dinner at Layton's Cafe, where he used the first of the $20 gold certificates to pay for his meal. After dinner, he returned home to his department and went to bed. He slept soundly until morning. Hickman signed his confession, a story of torture, death, and depravity that was so disturbing that even some of the hard-bitten and experienced detectives who had gathered to hear the tale were sick to their stomachs. Hickman's statements were widely published in newspapers across the country. The public was alternately fascinated, angered, outraged, and repulsed by the words of the monster who had murdered and dismembered an innocent 12-year-old girl. Marion Parker had achieved a tragic infamy, and now a vengeful nation wanted justice to be served. Hickman, not surprisingly, thrived on the attention. He was playing the part of the master criminal that he fancied himself to be. After his court appearance, Hickman was returned to his cell and he spoke to reporters. I'll plead guilty and stand by my confession regardless of what my attorney advises me to do, he announced with a hint of swagger in his tone. He told reporters he was ready to face the consequences of his actions. A reporter asked, suppose your attorney advised you to plead not guilty and stand trial. I'd plead guilty anyhow, Hickman sneered. You want a speedy trial? Yes, I want a speedy trial. Then after a pause, he added, but not too speedy. 
On January 3rd, 1928, Hickman, who with much bravado had claimed he would plead guilty to kidnapping and murder, no matter what his attorney told him to do, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. He returned to his role of crazy person, which he had attempted in Oregon. Whenever jail officers or officials connected to his trial were present, the normally outgoing and boastful inmate would suddenly become catatonic, staring at the walls of his cell for hours. Other times he babbled incoherently or howled and barked like a dog. The cops weren't buying it and the jury wouldn't buy it either. His trial began on January 25th. There were 150 seats available for spectators, but more than 1,000 showed up. Hickman's confession was entered into evidence and doctors arguing both for and against insanity took the stand. At one point, Hickman's defense counsel insisted on reading from 600 pages of depositions to try and establish that insanity ran in Hickman's mother's family. The trial lasted 15 days, with DA Asa Keys concluding it with his closing statement. It took the jury just 43 minutes to determine the fate of Edward Hickman. The vote had been unanimous. Hickman was sane. He knew what he was doing when he murdered and dismembered Marion Parker. He understood right from wrong and he comprehended the gravity of his actions. He was legally responsible for his crimes and he was guilty of them. Hickman was back in court on February 11th and was sentenced to be put to death on Friday, April 27th, but appeals by his attorneys drug on and on. A new date was finally set for October. At this point, Hickman announced, I've made up my mind to take my medicine. I know very well that I've been a most guilty sinner. Nevertheless, I have confessed my sins and I'm now trying to do what is right. I am sorry for having offended God and man. I desire punishment and ask no personal favors. Hickman was making a show of religious convictions, but when he was not, quote, confessing his sins, he was listening to jazz records on the phonograph in his cell sent to him by admirers and writing replies to the many fan letters that he'd received each week. Apparently, people were as obsessed with brutal killers and depraved murders in the 1920s as they are today. When not entertaining his followers, Hickman was also writing letters to the families of his victims. He claimed that he was doing a spiritual cleansing to make amends for what he considered his past mistakes and remove these crimes from his damaged soul. He told the police he was, quote, trying to get right with God. He wrote several of them, but the one he failed to write, the apology he failed to offer, was to the Parker family. He never expressed his regret for what was really his greatest crime. Visits by priests, religious messages to parents, letters of apology, all these things were a sham, just like the bogus insanity claim. Hickman proved it himself on the very night before his execution, when he finally offered his most chilling confession of all to prison guard Charles Alston. On the night of October 18th, Hickman couldn't sleep. Restless and looking for conversation, he called out to Alston and told him he wanted to talk. Bored, Alston walked over to face the notorious killer of Marion Parker, the guard who was a family man with children of his own. Two of them were close to Marion's age when she died. He despised Hickman and later admitted it was hard to resist the urge to spit in the cocky young man's face. Even so, he had questions he wanted to ask, and he did. Why did you kill Marion Parker? He asked. Alston expected the usual answer. He'd read everything Hickman had said to reporters, and he expected Hickman to tell him the same thing. He didn't, though. Hickman just shrugged. Because I got tired of finding her in the room where I kept her while I was trying to get the ransom money. It got so the sight of her face just drove me into a frenzy. 
Now, after a year's worth of headlines, a sensational trial, a series of confessions that became stranger and more gruesome as time went on, Hickman finally stated that he had killed Marion because she was an inconvenience. His great crime of kidnapping for ransom had worked smoothly until the botched Friday night exchange, and after Marion became irritating about it, he killed her. Hickman just felt like it because she annoyed him. Well, why didn't you just drop her off in front of her house and leave the state? Alston asked. Hickman shrugged again. It's funny you should say that. Marion said the same thing. I almost did it, but I thought she'd scream and alert the police guards at the Parker home before I could make a clean getaway. Hickman shook his head and sat down on his bunk. He looked up at the guard and added, that's where I use bad judgment. <laughs> that's where you use bad judgment? Alston started to walk away, disgusted with the conversation and disgusted with Hickman himself. But Hickman still wasn't finished. He looked up at Alston with a smirk, that same confident smirk that Mary Holt had seen that day at Marion Parker's school. It was the one that exuded such confidence and convinced Mrs. Holt to allow Marion to leave the school with the man who killed her two days later. Alston didn't like Hickman's smirk or his smug behavior. Hickman continued smiling at the guard and then looked directly in Alston's eyes and spoke. And I also got a kick out of dissecting Marion's corpse. Alston was stunned with rage. A lesser man might have opened the cell door and beaten Hickman into silence. A worse man might have killed him on the spot. But Alston silently turned away, his teeth and fists tightly clenched. And as he walked away down the corridor, he could hear Hickman laughing behind him. But he wouldn't be laughing for long. At 9.50 a.m. on the morning of October 19th, Hickman was taken from the death cell after a breakfast of eggs, prunes, a roll, and some coffee. He had picked at the food a little and drank some of the coffee. He stood dressed in a new black suit as Warden Hollihan entered his cell and read the formal order of execution. Hickman listened impatiently and then cried out, Now let me read you something. Handshaking, he read aloud the last letter he'd received from his mother and then burst into tears. It was time to go. Hickman shuffled from the cell. His ankles were chained and his arms were now tied to his sides. Two large burly guards walked on either side of him. His confidence and his smugness were gone. He was now just another murderer whose life was going to end. Hickman was noticeably shaking as he began climbing the 13 scaffold steps. About halfway up the steps, he slumped over and the guards with a hand under each arm had to help him. And as they did so, his old bravado returned for just a moment. He flung his head back and turned his face toward the whitewashed ceiling of the death chamber and began to pray. His lips moved and his face twitched. No one around him could hear or understand the words. Hickman was asked if he had anything he wanted to say. He shook his head. Finally, the killer was done talking. He never asked for mercy as the black hood was dropped over his head, but then... The man who'd murdered a young girl just for the thrill of it, fainted. His body sagged and he fell sideways. He was unconscious. In that second, the hangman raised his hand and three men poised with knives behind a screen on the gallows platform simultaneously drew their blades across three thin ropes. One of the ropes released the trapdoor and Hickman's slumped form slipped through. But thanks to the feint, his neck didn't break. He wasn't instantly killed, as was the standard method of execution. Because he'd fainted in the way he had, his weight had shifted, and when he fell, the noose strangled him to death, just the way he'd strangled Marion Parker. 
Hickman's body dangled at the end of the rope, flailing and jerking as the rope choked the life from him. He gurgled and coughed as he twisted back and forth. There was a noise below. One of the spectators had fainted. His wooden chair toppled over as he fell. Some of the reporters watched, some looked away, and the rest scribbled furiously on their notepads. Another spectator fainted at the sight of the body flailing on the rope. His chair also crashed to the floor. And then a reporter joined in. His pen skittered across the floor as it fell from his fingers. The prison physician, Dr. Ralph Becker, edged closely to the dangling body. He put a stethoscope to Hickman's chest and listened for a heartbeat. It was still there. He shook his head and waited for the last death throes of the body to occur. He tried again, and this time, there was nothing. It took William Edward Hickman almost 15 minutes to die. The Los Angeles Times noted, quote, Hickman is dead and the world is cleaner for his going. His pages turned and the rest of the pages are brighter by contrast. The Hickman case is over. Now let's forget it. But no one was ready to forget it, not just yet. Especially the lingering spirit of a little girl who met her cruel demise many years before her time. In the final days of 1927 and throughout most of 1928, the Marion Parker case was one of the most sensational, heartbreaking stories in America. People from all over the country eagerly read about every detail of the murders in the newspapers, watched the newsreels in their local cinemas, and heard it discussed on the radio. The story found its way into roots music and folk songs at the time. Murder ballads were an extremely popular form of entertainment, keeping the memories of the slain alive for years after they were gone. Those kinds of songs made popular by singers like Woody Guthrie and Huey Leadbelly Leadbetter reflected the times, the culture, and the news. Of course, such songs didn't get a lot of airplay outside of rural radio stations. They were pressed into records, but with a limited audience, they faded away over time. Unfortunately, so did the Marion Parker story. It's never had the impact of many other American crimes. In Marion's time, parents were not yet fearing for the safety of their children as they would later. Yes, they warned them not to talk to strangers, but thought nothing of letting them stay out after dark, play freely throughout the neighborhood, ride a streetcar to school, or even travel alone to go shopping or see a movie. Children were not often kidnapped, aside from a few isolated cases, and the story didn't manage to define the fears of the era. It just faded away. But Marion was not forgotten by those who knew her. In fact, it's not out of line to say that everyone involved in the case was haunted by her in some way. Once Hickman was dead, Perry Parker told the press he was glad it was over and that he intended on continuing to help his family get back to normal. It was something he'd been trying to do since the trial. They would move past this horrible time in their lives for good. Marion would remain in his heart, he said, but he no longer wanted to be haunted by the lifeless, dismembered body that he'd held in his arms. Of course, he never really got past it. After the final Hickman articles vanished from the papers, the Parkers eventually became yesterday's news. New stories, new crimes, and new sensations came along, and Perry Parker was finally left alone. He never spoke to the press again. Parker lived 16 more years, still mourning the daughter that he'd lost. His passing in 1944, at the age of only 57, was barely noticed by the press. 
Geraldine Parker lived until 1963 when she died of cancer at the age of 75. Geraldine had moved to San Diego three years after Perry Parker's death, and at the time she died, she was living with her daughter Marjorie Parker Holmes and Marjorie's husband. Marjorie had achieved her own level of infamy in the late 1920s simply due to being the twin who was spared by the killer. Marjorie had been shielded from the media by her father, and there was no record of her ever publicly discussing Marion's kidnapping or murder later in her life. Marjorie was still living in San Diego when she passed away on October 2nd, 1987, at the age of 71. The story of Marion Parker was overshadowed, not only by a murder that had happened a few years before when Leopold and Loeb had killed Bobby Franks, but it was also overshadowed by the 1932 kidnapping and murder of famous aviator Charles Lindbergh's infant son. Lindbergh had been at the height of his fame in 1927 when Marion Parker was kidnapped and killed. During the press reports of the Lindbergh kidnapping, the Parker case was referred to often, but the two more famous cases eventually washed away the story of Marion's cruel death. Even the ghost story attached to the Leopold and Loeb case is more famous, a tale of how the ghost of their victim Bobby Franks haunted the cemetery where his body was entombed for decades after his murder. But what about Marion Parker? In the middle 1980s, author Marvin Wolf was working on a book about crime in Los Angeles and was told by a friend of a friend that she was acquainted with the current owners of what had been the Parker home on South Wilton Place. She suggested that the owners might have some old photos of the house and gave Wolf a telephone number to call. He made the call and reached a 33-year-old graduate student named Michelle Pelland. She'd never heard of Marion Parker and didn't know anything about the connection to one of LA's most famous crimes and the house that she was living in. She listened with interest as Wolf told her about the kidnapping and murder. As he spoke though, she suddenly interrupted him. Oh, that accounts for our ghost. Ghost? Wolf asked. Pellin explained, yes, I, I call it a ghost, but it's not at all frightening. She said that one of the main reasons that she, graduate student Steve Daly and accountant Ed Harris, pulled their resources and bought the house in the first place was because they got such a good feeling from it. She said it felt like there had been a lot of love in the house. About nine months after she moved in, though, Daly began to notice something strange. Daly later spoke with Wolf. He explained, I'm a skeptic. I'm very reluctant to say that it's some kind of physical manifestation of a spirit, but there's definitely something here. I've always had the feeling in this house that we've been sharing the space with something, but it's not intrusive. I first noticed it after we got a kitten. Many cats are prowlers. They're all over the house, but not mine. This is a lap cat. Always stays very close. I'm often home alone working on a school paper or catnapping or just quietly reading and I hear footsteps. Sometimes I hear somebody on the stairs. At first I thought it was the cat, but it's always right next to me in plain sight. Then I started to listen more carefully. It's not just the sounds of an old house settling. There's definitely another presence in the house, but I never notice it when there's anybody else home. Daly spoke of other encounters with the eerie something in the house, stating that there seemed to be a softness to the presence, which led him to believe it was a small child. He continued, One afternoon as I went down the stairs, I felt and I saw something out of the corner of my eye. I turned my head and there was nothing. Maybe it was only a flash of light from the street, but I know I felt something get out of my way. Until I learned about the kidnapping, the spirit or whatever it was didn't have a name. Now I'm inclined to call it Marion. 
The ghost manifested itself in various ways. The owners of the house once had an Irish setter named Max, a skittish dog that bolted at sudden noises and often at things that no one else heard. One day he reacted so strangely to some unknown noise or movement that he ran out of the front door that had been mysteriously opened and he never returned. There were also objects that inexplicably moved about the kitchen. Daly told Wolf, Sometimes things get moved from the center of the table, but I'm the only one in the house. I'm sort of absent-minded sometimes, but there have been several times when I'm very sure I put a dish or a cup in a certain place. I've been home all alone, but it's moved somewhere else when I see it. Michelle Pellin told Wolf that she often felt something when she entered an upstairs bedroom that had always been unexplainably referred to as the, quote, kid's bedroom. It's a benevolent spirit, she was convinced. It knows when somebody's afraid, then it stays out. My son Nathan hears it a lot. He's had a feeling that something was there, but it wasn't a threatening presence. When he first began to notice the presence of the spirit, Nathan was 12, the same age as Marion Parker when she was kidnapped. When Pelland and Wolf first spoke about the house, it was a dark and unusually stormy night in mid-December. Purely by chance, it also happened to be the anniversary of the week when Marion Parker was kidnapped and murdered in 1927. When Wolf described Marion's eventual fate, an eerie thing occurred. I thought you'd like to know that all the lights in the house are going on and off. Pelland gasped into the telephone. Daly, who was sitting nearby, confirmed it. Pelland shuddered. My hair is standing on end. He wasn't afraid to admit it later. So was Marvin Wolf's. Since that time, and as recently as the late 1990s, others who have lived in the house have also reported eerie events. One family said they heard weird noises, some of which sounded like a child calling out. According to some stories, a seance was later conducted in the house and psychics confirmed that the resident spirit really was that of Marion Parker, still occupying the house where she had once lived happily with her family. After Marion was taken by the fox, the only thing she wanted was to be back home with her sister, her brother, and her parents. This was a little girl who didn't like to be away from home after dark. When the ransom exchange was botched on Friday night, she begged her abductor to just take her home, drop her off in the driveway, and drive away. She would have done anything to go home again. That's all she wanted, to go home. And it looks like after all these years, she's finally made it. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language 
better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I'm like, what is that noise? That's weird. (laughs) All right. Okay, I need a micro, or I need headphones with a longer fucking cord. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good. I mean, I got it, but. Oh, shit. Now I don't. Now I'm unhooked. That's probably why I'm deaf. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a good chance that's why I can't hear anything anymore? So. Oh, man. Okay, I guess we should get started. Got a a lot to get through. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm ready. Okay. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast. Okay, let's go. The show where we discuss history. Oh, I'm supposed to do this at the end, aren't I? Legends, lore, and the dark side of American history in Troy Taylor's uh, comedy album. We are now in season five (laughs) of the podcast Haunted Hollywood. I am your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Who's obviously anxious to start yeah. talking yeah sorry I missed about that. this cue i know i did i did i, I apologize oh you're good what's going on dude well, i didn't mean that sincerely it wasn't a real apology uh, of, of course not <laughs> <laughs> no everything's good uh it's spring finally it's so nice outside. Although, it's really, hot outside i mean let's be honest it really wasn't that bad of a winter no i mean i didn't mind it it wasn't terrible uh um, like a couple snowstorms at least where we then. are well, I, yeah, I mean, other, that's <laughs> other people good. had it a lot worse than us. That's but a good point. Where we are, it hasn't been bad. So it's kind of nice to, but it's still nice to get into spring because things just seem to sort of take off in the spring. Yeah. You know, we, we sit kind of dormant through a lot of the winter, although really winter was kind of like our entire last year. Yes. Really was kind of like one really long winter. Yeah. So, um, you know, now that things are starting to get better, look up, uh, I'm completely vaccinated. Um, really? Yes, I am. Which one did you get? Uh, Pfizer. Okay. I've had both Pfizer shots. Uh, I recommend that to anybody uh, and everybody because the more people and the faster that they can get vaccinated, the faster we get back to normal. Yeah. Although I tend to find that the people who won't get vaccinated are the same people who wouldn't wear masks. Mm-hmm. So Charles Darwin uh, is smiling somewhere in his <laughs> grave because they're the people who are going to uh, be the ones who aren't here anymore. Uh, but that's not my problem. 
Anyway, uh, I just try to encourage people to do it because people who are our listeners or our readers or whatever are what I consider to be part of the American Hauntings family, and yeah. I'd like to keep them around a little bit I would longer. like that, too. So anyway, but things are taking off. Um, I, you know, I had a new book come out last month, mm-hmm. uh, my book on the Donner Party. Uh, it is uh, not the kind of party you want to attend. Nope. Um, it is a, a barbecue of mm-hmm. a kind that you'd like to pass on. But my book, Forlorn Hope, came out last month, and I have a new one coming out this month. Mm-hmm. It, it just happened. Um, I keep telling everybody this is my last pandemic project. And sure. the longer the damn pandemic goes, the more projects that I do. But mm-hmm. um, I kept this one a secret. I, I was playing a game with everybody, kind of hinting around as to what it might be with photographs around the office. Yeah, and it was fun. Some people guessed it, um, not in the beginning, but by the second time they guessed it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is a book. It's going to be, it is called Nevermore. And it is about Edgar Allan Poe. And yeah. Haunted Life and Mysterious Death, and um, by the time everybody hears this on April the 6th, we're recording this before Easter, Uh, you're going to hear this after Easter, and uh, you will have seen the cover and uh, everything by then, and it will be out in April. So uh, we also have a new issue of The Morbid Curious coming out in April also. So a couple of of fun things to watch for. Um, We've also added... Uh, more of the dinner and spirits events, because that's been one of those things that has, for the most part, not in the beginning, obviously, and we had one patch in the fall we had to postpone. But for the most part, the dinner and spirits events have been fairly pandemic proof because they're fairly small groups anyway. We usually could make them fit. Uh, but we've added some because they've just continued to to be popular. I yeah. love doing them. I, I really do. I, it gives me a chance to meet people uh, that I would not have necessarily got to meet. And I get to get up and talk about stuff that are some of my favorite things. Yeah. So we do have more stuff coming up. We've had to add some uh, because they keep selling out. Um, we have one. In fact, I'm doing one tonight um, as we record this. But the next one that is available, we've got some that are sold out. The next one that's available is April 24th. And that is called uh, Evening in a Dark Place. And it's like sinister, demonic type hauntings. Um, it's a fun one. Yeah. I, I put it together. It's a lot of fun. Doing one on the Bell Witch, another St. Louis exorcism. I'm doing one on Edgar Allan Poe, the Donner Party, Haunted Hotels, Wyatt Earp, uh, and the Spirits of Tombstone, um, and another Hell Hath No Fury, mm-hmm. the one about the uh, the women serial killers and, and you know, and the hauntings left behind by women murderers and that kind of thing. Um, it's a very uh, bring your girlfriends kind yeah. of thing. Not mine. You bring your girlfriends um, kind of thing. And um, we've already sold out the one that we've got coming up in April. So we added one in August. And then, of course, by probably within a couple of episodes, we'll start putting together our stuff for fall. Mm-hmm. But we do have um, River Road Tours coming up for the summer, too. Nice. Um, we had a lot of demand on those. They always sell out. I've got one on June the 5th. I don't know. By the time everybody hears this. That one's getting close to full, but we have another one on July 30th, and we have one on August 13th, which is Friday the 13th. I think it's the only one this year. Really? Yeah, I think so. But anyway, and then, of course, we got ghost hunts and all kinds of stuff. So anybody who's interested in that stuff, the the evening with events, the dinners, they're at dinnerandspirits.com, and you can just go to our main website at AmericanHauntings.net to get, I don't know, 
everything else, mm-hmm. anything else that we got going on. Yeah, so. I want to do another River Road tour. Yeah, those, you should those come. are always fun. Yeah, they are fun. And uh, um, I really like doing them. And there's then, something different. What? There's Ghost Hunt tonight, I believe, at Mineral, at the Mineral Springs. Yeah, and we had to add a couple of those because they filled up so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one tonight has been sold out for a while, but we've got one on May fifteenth mm-hmm. is our next one, and it's uh, I don't know right now it's at like half full. Yeah. Um, so we, I spent the day today, um, well, I should say I spent the day today loading stuff in, but, mm-hmm. uh, Lisa and I spent, well, okay, mostly Lisa, uh, <laughs> spent uh, time. We we're reopening the vault at the Mineral Springs, which has been closed by the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but we are reopening. We repainted everything. Uh, we've restocked it. It is it looks uh, nice. pretty sharp. Um, we, we really, it really turned out nice. I'm mm-hmm. really happy with how it turned out. So uh, we're we're gonna have that open again. I I hope to do at some point here do another book signing or something. Yeah. Uh, as we've done before, we do them every once in a while, and I haven't done one for a while, obviously, because we've right. been closed for a year. Yeah. Uh, but um, that the vault will be open again for special events. It'll also be open for the River Road tours, and it will also be open for all of the Alton Hauntings tours from now on. We're starting our tours. Uh, from this point on at the Mineral Springs. So nice. um, the vault will always be accessible to people when mm-hmm. they come on the tour. So that'll be fun. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. And if you do any of those ghost hunts at Mineral Springs, sometimes yeah. they just randomly pop in. So hey, yeah, if, right. If you're right. there, you know, say hi. There. Sometimes I'm there. It just depends. Tonight I'm not there because I'm uh, doing a St. Louis exorcism thing, but Kaylin is going to be there. Mm-hmm. She'll be running it, um, which, I mean, by the time anybody hears this, it's going to be long right. over. Right. But uh, I should be at the one in May. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Lisa and I both should be, as far as I know, unless something changes. So nice. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive into some listener reviews. Um, a couple things I wanted to call out first. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Molly, for a review. Uh, it was really she wrote a really long review. It's oh yeah, yeah I it, saw that. But it's yeah. very heartfelt and nice. Yeah, it was and, a good one. I appreciate that. Um, there was another review. Um, it it was just titled "Get Rid of Cody." I just want to say. Well, we talked about that last episode. I, I it was some audio issues. I cut it out. Um, but I just wanted to. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say. Um, basically, he said I made some bad jokes. Oh, and that's and all that. right. You did cut that out because I told that person to kiss my ass. Yeah. I think and stop listening to our show. I just wanted um, to say, I'm, I, I you did cut that out. I just want to say I'm actively so. looking for my own replacement. But thank you. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. Well, we're not. But let's get so, on to some nice, some nice reviews. Uh, this one's from Mango Charlie seventy six. It's titled History and heckling says this is a nice mix of great history and fun conversation i used to get a little annoyed with the second half of the show when i first started listening but now i love it troy and cody are awesome together i still get annoyed with the second part of the show and i've been listening that's the only part i want to listen to (laughs) i can't listen to the first part because i don't want to hear myself tell the story yeah i don't want to listen to that is it weird for you to hear your own voice still even after all that um i don't like it i've never liked it yeah um even when people tell me i sound like steve carell yeah somebody somebody did i don't know several people have said that and i'm okay with that right but i still don't want to listen to it yeah i don't think i hear it i know we have talked about this before i don't either but i've had a lot of people tell Eh? me that which cracks me up yeah it could be worse i wish i could be that funny but i'm not so uh thank you for that review this one is from andrew uh Lighthizer's titled Love It says, so good. Troy's a great narrator to the well-researched stories. Cody and Troy work great together, and Cody provides me with many laugh-out-loud moments. Thank you. There you um, go. Informative and thoroughly entertaining. Would recommend to anyone. Keep up the great work, guys. Best podcast out there. Thank you so much. This next one... <laughs> 
It's just, it's like a frowny emoji kind of is the name. Um, I'm not <laughs> okay. sure. Uh, just says amazing. Ama- I've seen this one. Amazing storytelling and excellent host. Troy is the absolute best at retelling history. He's so educated on all topics he covers. He is able to keep those not remotely interested in historical topics glued to this podcast. Truly amazing. <laughs> Cody always asks the questions that I myself would ask and the conversations between the two make this podcast even more phenomenal. I hope you guys never stop recording the podcast. I will seriously be lost without it. Thank you for the hours of entertainment. You two are absolutely amazing at what you do. Okay, so. So That's really where's nice. the frown? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of like I need a name, a username, oh, okay. or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, when I saw that pop up on the review thing, I was like, oh, <laughs> you boy. thought another get rid of Cody? Ooh, here we go. Review. Yeah. Uh, this last one is from um, Burr Pfeiffer. It just says best. It says guys, stop ragging on season one. I've been listening since the beginning. And I've listened to season one multiple times. It's simple and awesome. Love you guys. Uh, thank you so much. Well, uh, actually, the beginning of season two is a little rough too. Yeah. But we we finally eventually we figured it out. We figured it out. Yeah, stick some time. Uh, yeah, so thank you for the reviews. We're so close to a thousand. I keep talking about this. Oh, it's yeah, just yeah. this is the milestone I want to yeah, hit. But cool. uh, yeah, that, I just I love seeing those pop up. Are you ready to dive into sure. part two? Yeah, if there's anything left to say after uh, that hour long uh, narration that yes, I gave you. Yes, that was that was yeah, very it was, detailed. It's a little long. Well, you know what? T- listen, I cut, I cut, and I cut, and I cut to trim this story down, and it was hard to do. Um, if anybody wants the full story of this, I mean, I wrote it. In, here's the thing. I tried to turn this into two episodes of a podcast. I wrote an entire book about this yeah, case. Damn. So um, if anybody wants to read the book, it's called uh, I uh, I Want to Come Home Tonight. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the book. Um, so sad. And I couldn't, I mean, it was hard to cut it because it was one of those stories that I, I was... Well, I mean, I was attached enough to the story to write an entire book about it. Yeah. It's a great story. It's not that well-known, which I talked about at the end. Yep. Um, it's it's not as well-known as it should be, but it, it's one of those stories that really just, you know, man, just rips your heart out, man. It's a tough one. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's I have nightmares. This is a tough season. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it was tough when we did like Velisca and you're talking about all those little, six little kids being murdered yeah. and stuff, but... This has been a tough season. I mean, we have a lot of this, but it's it's Hollywood. It's L.A. It's a very depraved part of the country. I think with Velisca, after a while, we had enough court case things where I got desensitized (laughs) to all the other shit that happened. Yeah, but Uh, this one's tough. It is. Uh, Okay, so Detective George. Oh, and there's more coming. So we're not. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't though. I don't think we have a lot of more dead kids. That's the good. Okay. I mean, I know I rag on kids and stuff. I know this. This. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Detective George Contreras shows up at the ransom drop, finds Perry Parker too stunned to cry, which I I guess I'm not surprised. I can't (laughs) imagine. Imagine how much that breaks your brain. I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like. No. Seriously. But I wanted to clarify. So he put the body of his daughter in his car? Is that... Well, it was... well, yeah, he picked her up. He didn't want to leave her laying yeah, in the I, I just didn't, street. I, I mean, don't, I don't you know, know what you do in that situation. He, I mean, he picked the... up this bundle. I mean, it was wrapped in a blanket, and it was her head and torso. Yeah. I mean, that's all there was. Ugh. And picked her up and put her in his car. And then, you know, this is that this is like my favorite detective of ever. Yeah, he sounds uh, this is amazing. the guy. This is the guy that I just love. This is one of the guys, you know, one of those really tough. Well, there's there's another one. You know, the other guy. Uh, shoot. 
Uh, I, I I got his name in here. Yeah, somewhere. yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll get to him, but he's he's really my favorite. But Contreras is pretty good too. Yeah, and he's a pretty tough dude who picks up this bodily body and takes it to the ambulance, and then you know goes follows it to the morgue because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to let her out of his sight. Yes, I mean what's left of her. Right. A. F. Wagner, Doctor A. F. Wagner performs the first autopsy. The na- next door neighbor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How awful is that? That's got to be tough. Yeah. Did I tell you? Uh, this is a little side note, but I'm not going to mention the hospital, but my sister, Cassidy, as you know, yeah. um, she had a twin that died at birth. Right. And right. my grandfather was the uh, minister, reverend, I can't remember exactly what it was, at the hospital. Oh, man. They called chaplain. Him, chaplain, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's called the Fred. No, I'm not going to say what. Never mind. But um, yeah. they, they called him and said, hey, we need you to like do whatever last oh, rites kind of thing. Didn't fucking tell him it was his granddaughter. Oh, God. Till he got up there. I was like, guys. Yeah, come on. on. Well, maybe whoever called didn't know. I guess so. Yeah. But I mean, this guy, I mean, you know, he's the next door neighbor to the Parkers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so of course he knew this girl. He didn't need anybody to come and identify her. He could do it himself. Right. Still, um, yeah, it must have been a shock. Of but I, I'm sure he had no idea, yeah. you know, that it was coming, you know. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the killer grabs dinner, tells the cashier, you'd be surprised if you knew who I was. <laughs> this douchebag move reminds me of, <laughs> uh, reminds me of Timothy McVeigh when he was, he went to a strip yeah. club and was right. like, you're going to be, like, you're going to remember me for the rest uh-huh. of your life, blah, blah, yeah. blah, that kind of just. Well, yeah, douche. and actually he did more of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I had, to, <laughs> I had to trim things out, man. <laughs> sure, sure, I sure. mean, this guy's such a tool. That, I mean, I couldn't, I, I, hopefully my, how much I hate this guy comes through. Yeah. But, I mean, it really comes through in the book because I just, Tear I apart. just absolutely hate this guy. I, I just do. Mm. He's just awful. And what a, what a jerk off. I know. I mean, there's just nothing you can say in, in his defense. No. There's no, nothing. Nothing redeemable. No. Uh, detectives find the car, take fingerprints, decide to stake it out, hoping he's going to return to the parking lot. Um, this is what he said. You said the press, uh, things got out to the press, but there was worse stuff to come. Eventually, they start discovering the limbs wrapped in newspaper in Elysian Park. Mm. An hour later, boy, some boys hiking find the rest, get tire tracks, match that. So, I mean, he's just leaving evidence. Oh, he's an idiot. All over I the mean, place. I mean, he's an idiot. He is, the, the comparison between he and, and I know we haven't done this yet as a podcast, but the Leopold and Loeb story when they murdered Bobby Franks, mm-hmm. they did it because they thought that they were such masterminds that it was the perfect crime. Yeah. And this is this guy's the same way. He thinks he's so much smarter than the police, but he's a complete idiot. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything he does is like, you know, like a signal fire to the police. And, you know, later on, and I talked about this in the book more, I talk about the fact that you know, some people believe he was trying to get caught. I don't believe that's the case. I think he was just stupid. And I mean, anybody who thinks they're a genius usually is not. Right. <laughs> this is a perfect case of that. You know, him sending the letters that he sent and the way he did things and then asking for $1,500. And, you know, they give it to him in gold certificates and then the dumbass He's starts spending, spending them. them the same night. Yeah. I mean, did he, you know, does he not learn any? Well, I mean, you would think that, you know, when this is, this is how they caught the Lindbergh kidnapper, mm-hmm. you know, is spending right. the money and, you know, but of course that would be down the road, but maybe he should have learned something from this case. But even so, I mean, the, the, this kid is a moron and he's 19 years old. Yeah. That's what makes it worse. You yes. know, uh, reward fund starts to grow more than 25,000 people gather outside the Parker's home, which God. like that's, that's uh, that's but see that's again a nightmare how little has that changed yeah i mean we were talking it was in 1912 
We're talking about people, you know, 1911, 1912, people showing up at Villisca and Colorado Springs and, you know, thousands of people. Well, that's where we came up with the morbid curious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. where they came from. Um, and, you know, people would hang out in the street and honk their horns and drive up and down, you know, and finally, you know, Perry Parker, who is not, you know, some elite member of the city, they're upper middle class, you know, really. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's yes, he works at a bank and stuff, but it's not like he's the president of the bank. It's not like they're super wealthy or anything. Yeah. But the police show enough sympathy to close off the block. Sure. Because, I mean, come on. That's just, I mean, you know, that's too many people. And I think a lot of those people meant well. Yeah. Trying to show their support. But then, you know, on the other hand, you had a lot of people who are just yeah. idiots who just show up to be part of the club, of you know, course, part yeah. of what's going on at the moment. Yep. It's, you know, we see the same thing today. I mean, it's, I get it. it's the same reason that, you know, people show up to leave, you know, candles and photographs and things at a, at a scene of a disaster or yeah. something, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's the same kind of people. Sure. I mean, it's and not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if you're just trying to show your support, you know, but there's a lot of people who are doing it not to show their support, but just so they can be part of the moment. Right, right, right. You know? yeah, read the room a little bit. Right, there you go. Uh, That's a good way to put it. Exactly. So at this point, the cops know his name, but not where to find him. Meanwhile, Dr. Wagner claims he can't tell if she was dead or not before being mutilated. Ooh. Just lie, dude. I know, <laughs> right? Know? That's like, kind of what I thought, too. When I when I, when I I saw that and, you know, in the book, I go a little deeper into the, you know, the, the inquest and things. And it's like, dude, just... Just tell the parents yeah, she was dead exactly. because, and and I think she she really was. Right, I mean, we'll even based into. on his confession, I think she was. But on the other hand, why even put the doubt out? There? I know, <laughs> you gosh, know, it's you know, just so. he's really good at his job. I, I know, guess. I, I know, know, but geez, yeah. So reporters start to find out. It's um, the twenties. You can still get away with that shit. I guess, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> reporters start to public information comes out about who this guy is. Reporters start to get more information on him. Police are everywhere on looking out for him. He's just by sheer luck, just keeps barely getting away, yeah. getting away, driving all over the place, picking. It, this is actually clever, picking up hitchhikers and stuff. Yeah, to it was, it, get through. You know, I don't think he was a complete idiot. I think he was clever, but stupid. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? We all know if that makes like sense. That. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. No real brains, but was clever enough to, and you know, and it only got away because it was the 1920s mm -hmm. and it's not like you can like, send around you can't send out an amber alert to everybody's cell phone sure. you can't send photographs to newspapers everywhere i mean you can send stuff out on the wire right but that's just text i mean yeah. that's all there was back then so it made it more difficult for the police to track him down but even so even being the 1920s mm -hmm. These are some really close calls. They're just one step behind him. Yeah, there. So I times, mean, and yeah. you know, like one of the the you know the, the hitchhiker he picks up who gets out of the car and like there's a newspaper with his face on it. And he's yeah. like, oh shit, that's yeah. the guy I just got a ride from, you know. And they just narrowly miss him every time until you had a newspaper guy who just wanted to be in on the act. And a guy, I wish I could have gone into more detail in the. In the episode, in the book, I talk more about uh, about uh, Gurdain, mm -hmm. the, the the cop, yeah. who is like really. I mean, you know, we got a couple of these guys from L.A. who are the hardcore detectives no out nonsense. of a crime noir thing, but yep. this guy is like, this guy's like a um, an old time sheriff. Yeah, yeah, he's like Matt Dillon or something. You know, yeah, and he's, I can see that. And I mean, he's really. I mean, and when you see photographs of him, mm -hmm. he's he's really that kind of 
rangy old lawman that probably knew Wyatt Earp, you know, sure, <laughs> you know what right, I mean? right. one of those kind of deals, it's what he looks like. Yeah. And he somehow has made it into the 1920s. Mm-hmm. You know, when those, most of those guys were dying out, they were a dying breed by the turn of the century. And if he'd have had a horse, that's what he'd have been riding. Nice. You know, it was one of those kind of guys, you yeah. know, and, um, the fact that he and a, you know, and a buddy from the state police, because he had no jurisdiction outside of his town. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, wrangled a buddy to go out with him. And um, they grabbed him. Yep. I mean, they were they figured they were it out. On it. They yeah. were on it ahead of all these L.A. guys and yeah. big city cops. Well, I mean, it was a couple of small town, you know, guys who got him. I think so. about it now too. So they pull him. They pull him over with their guns drawn. They pull him out. And a forty-five drops a running board. And he also has a shotgun. Can you imagine <laughs> yeah. that now? Like, yeah, no kidding. And I, I'm they'd have just shot him. I know. I mean, they'd have just killed him, which so. I would have been fine with. But yeah, no, really, I know they probably kind of wish they could have been able to do it. Yeah. You know? Hopefully, so. they roughed him up a little bit. Yeah. Maybe, but. Oh, Oh, I'm sure they probably did. And as the handcuffs are snapped over Hickman's wrist, he let out a hysterical bray of laughter like the maniac that he is. Well, and that's the thing. Um, and that's and I didn't want to. And I talk about I, I mentioned that quite a bit about how he does these things that are um, very inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's not to imply that I think he was legally insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you'd have to be nuts to do what he did. Of course. But he knew it was wrong. Yeah. So that's your definition there. Yeah, he knew what I he mean, was doing. I mean, did he belong in a, in a, in a straitjacket in a mental hospital? Maybe, but that wasn't going to happen in the 20s. Yeah. They were going to hang him. There mm. was no way they weren't going to hang this clown. Yeah. But on the other hand, do I think he had a screw loose? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it started young, you know, robbing a candy store in high school, moves to California, gets into some more armed robbery, robbery, yeah. uh, wounds an officer on Christmas Eve, kills a store owner with a friend or, you know, mm-hmm. there's just violent. Yeah. Crime there's, and, and there's, and there's again, more detail in the book, yeah, but yeah. I wanted to at least get the idea that this is not some choir boy. Sure. I don't care what his friends said. I don't care what his principal said yeah. about how he was class president and mm-hmm. all this bullshit. Somewhere along the line, one of his screws came loose mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and again, I know that it was a different time. And so he's seen things in the news and in the media and things about gangsters. And I mean, it's the 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, and he's, you know, he wants to be in the movie business. Well, okay, fine. But he's going to see too many Jimmy Cagney movies, mm-hmm. you know, and thinks that this is the way to go. And that's what he gets into. I mean, I think that everything that he did um, were things that he, I, I, I'm convinced that he saw all this in a movie mm-hmm. and starts robbing stores and stuff because he thought he could get away with it. And he did for a long time. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, until they caught up with him and then he lied about his age and they sent him back to his mother, who really was a whack job yeah. in Kansas City. And then he ends up, you know, stealing a car and taking off and, you know... I, I can't... You probably haven't got to it yet, but when he takes his trip across the across the Midwest oh, going to Chicago and going to Chicago and going up to Michigan and then heading out East and, you know, going on a sightseeing trip to Gettysburg. Yeah, right. I love that. <laughs> and I thought, are you kidding me? <sighs> you know, which so just tells you how immature and what a, what an idiot this kid is. Yeah. He's you a know? kid, but he was a kid and, but that doesn't excuse what he did. Oh no! You know, not. and again, I don't. I just don't want people to get the idea that because I point out these weird things that he does, or these juvenile things that he does, that I think that he deserved to 
not pay the price for what he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And when we get to the, you know, when that, uh, and I, I know we've already heard it, right. everybody's heard it, but when that, that prison guard interviews him or not mm. interviews him, but talks to him and he confesses that he just killed Marion because she annoyed him. Yeah. That's how you know that this guy's depraved. Yeah, of course. I mean, he is definitely psychotic yeah. or at least sociopathic. I mean, he's, I mean, there's just no way around it. Yep. Contreras goes to Oregon with detectives H.G. Taylor and E.M. Harmon, great detective names, uh, yeah, to bring they? bring Hickman back. Uh, when informed of his death penalty offense, he f- flew into a frenzy. Um, he said, you know, it seems weird. Maybe it was finally just reality setting, settling in yeah. for a minute. Yeah, uh, I think it was all a ploy. Yeah, I think he I think the, he's a complete sociopath. And yeah. I think that everything that he did, like the two suicide attempts you know, I think right. all of that was a was a ploy right. to make him look crazy. I don't think he, you know, we got to, if you do a head first dive off the top bunk onto a concrete floor stupid. and all he gets is a bump on his head, then he, d- it wasn't serious. About right, right, right. Because you really could kill yourself that way. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to. And then he tried to hang himself, which I could not help but point out how ridiculous it was. It's ironic. That he, you know, knows he's going to be hanged yeah. for the crime, but then tries to hang himself. Yeah. What the, what the fuck? I don't you know, know. Makes no sense at all. And if, I'm sure that the cops felt the same way. Yeah, I would just be annoyed. But then he brings, but then when Asa Keys comes up, the, the district attorney, and mm-hmm. he brings it, Herman Klein with him. It's Klein who's my favorite. He's my favorite. Oh, of the right, cops. right, right, right. He's the one who's the the badass, and he really, you know, goes through this whole big thing. It's a lot longer than I put it in here. When uh-huh. he goes to visit him and says, "You know, are you a yellow cur? You gonna brace up and be a man?" Right. It actually, it's like a page. It's like a page out of the book, a whole complete page of all the things he says to him. Really? Like, you're a ballless little... B- oh, <laughs> I mean, wow. it's bad. I mean, he really is a... He's a badass. Yeah. And um, these are the kind of cops that you see in old movies that run late at night on TMC. Uh-huh. You know? It's, yeah. Um, it's the... These are the guys. So. so he decides to fess up on Christmas Day, talks about how, you know, it went to the movies, eat and laugh a lot and all that. Yeah. Troy, you went into some very gruesome detail. I did. And I and I give I gave a long warning yeah, to everybody that, listen, you need to hit the skip button if this is going to freak you out. Yeah. Because I went into a lot of detail and actually left out some Ugh. stuff. Ooh. Yeah, that's how bad it is. I bet. So he signs the confession. Uh, he thrives on the attention once his confession goes public, claims he wants a speedy trial, will plead guilty regardless of what the attorney <laughs> says. He lies. Uh, enters a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which he said he's kind of setting up for a while. Uh, trial's about 15 days, takes the jury 43 minutes to find him guilty. Uh, he's initially supposed to be hung in April, but it's pushed to October. So this shit used to go real quick. Yeah, it's still pretty quick. I mean, the trial ended in February, and um, you know he was initially supposed to be hung in, in, uh, in April, but right. then they... His attorneys kept appealing the case. Uh-huh. And again, I hate to keep doing this, but in the book, you find you you read a lot more about the attorneys. I cut out all the trial stuff yeah. because it's really long. We've done that. I, we've had <laughs> yeah. to. And um, but his attorneys initially were, you know, really serious. I mean, they were doing their jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great job sometimes, but they have to well, do they're, it. They're but supposed to make the prosecution do right, their job. Exactly. And um but then it, he eventually confesses even more mm-hmm. to the attorneys and tells them more stuff than he even told in court mm. and told to to um, DA Keys. And I think that I think if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I read the book, but if I remember correctly, one of them quit. 
It was that really? bad. Jeez. Uh, but they did their jobs and they kept running the appeals because they were convinced he was completely insane. Mm-hmm. After he confessed to them even more than he had done to the authorities, they're like, okay, this kid is batshit crazy. Uh, but, you know, there was no way in the 1920s that he was going to get away with yeah. this. I mean, yeah. it just wasn't. But again, though, you get, you know, he he eventually goes to and, and says that he's willing to accept his punishment and then spends his time, you know, first he goes through this fake religious thing. Of course. And then, you know, but then people are sending him. He's got like a fan a club. Photograph and, and, you know, a phonograph player and jazz records and l- fan letters and shit. I mean, nothing has changed. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we see this stuff and, you know, this guy's no Ted Bundy. Right. I mean, as far as looks go. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's just as fucked up as just Ted Bundy killed a lot more people. Right. But this kid is just as messed up, but he's not, he's not good looking. At least mm-hmm. Bundy was good looking. Right. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. I mean, you know, all these guys getting married in prison and stuff. Manson I mean, I don't, and Manson yeah. and, you know, and, and it just. So he writes apology letters to victims, families, but he <laughs> leaves out. A yeah. Big one. What the f- a big one? <laughs> the fuck. I, don't know. I know. I I thought, what in the world? Why would you even bother? Just half to measure, do this yeah. to people. I mean, I, yes. I mean, he was sending letters to like the guy at the with the drugstore that he'd shot and stuff, but then never apologizes to the Parkers. Hmm. I mean, I mean, that's that's depraved. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it just is. Yeah. So. So the night before the execution, uh, he said he offers his most chilling confession to prisoner guard yeah. Charles Alston. Killed Marion because she was an inconvenience. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah. Uh, didn't drop her off alive because he didn't think he could make a clean escape. Drop her off down the fucking block. I know dude. it, right? That's what I thought, too. I mean, it's not like she could have ran home in time for you to drive away. Right. He wanted to kill her, yeah. obviously. I mean, that was the plan all along. I still think that I still I don't believe for a second that his plan was to kidnap her for ransom mm-hmm. because $1,500 is not going to, even in, even in the 1920s yeah. is not going to last. Um, I, I think that he had this itch to have someone under his control that he could cut up and experiment on. I mean, he told the prison guard that he got a real charge out of dissecting her body. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that was the that was the plan all along. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of it was all just a game. Yeah. I mean, it was all something that he just wanted to do. You know, yep. I don't think he ever intended on taking her back. I really don't. On the morning of his execution, he uh, reads the last letter his mother sent him out loud and <laughs> bursts into tears. He faints as the black bags put over his head, mm-hmm. um, which I'm surprised I don't hear about more people doing, I guess. Um, but because, yeah, kind of in too, really. Yeah. But, well, I mean, it's just, I mean, there haven't been a lot of hangings. In, well, yeah, in quite, I guess so. Time. I, guess, I, mean, I guess I feel like my adrenaline would be going. I'd be shaking. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, know. I don't want to think about it. Uh, because he fainted, his neck didn't break. Strangles to death. Yeah, well, that's all right. How appropriate. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Re- I didn't really, I, I didn't find any sadness. No, I didn't, lo- that, yeah, so didn't lose any sleep over that part. Got what it deserved. Reporters started fainting. Um, I'm like, well, they're going to an execution. What are they? Well, I know, but that, I don't, that wasn't normal. Particularly I mean, normally one. when they would hang somebody, I mean, it was down to a science. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, they really had it planned. I mean, you, you hear about the ones that go badly. Mm-hmm. You don't always hear about it all the ones that went really smoothly, Smooth. you know, and people's neck snaps as soon as the trap door drops out and that's the end. Mm. And so it's, um, I, I don't know if it's painless. No one does because 
you'd have to go through it to know if it was painless, but at least it's quick. Yeah. When they don't go correctly and they end up, you know, hanging 15 and, minutes. Yeah. And strangling at the end of the rope. Those yeah. are the ones you sometimes hear about, but what you don't hear about in most of those things is what happens to your body after the, when you die by strangulation or by hanging. I mean, all of your body functions release. Yeah. I mean, they don't ever talk about the mess yeah, I'm sure. that comes with it, you know, and believe me, it's, it's a mess. I'm sure. And all of those things do happen, but you just don't usually see that in the reports. Yeah. And, you know, these reporters who would come to this stuff, were not used to, I mean, we were starting to see electrocutions and things. There would only be a couple of more hangings. And we've talked about those mm -hmm. during this season. We've talked about the last guy and the second, the last guy that was hanged. Yeah. And, um, you know, then they moved on to execution to electric chair and then eventually the gas chamber, uh, which each time was supposed to be more humane, <laughs> but you know, we've all seen the green mile. So we know yeah. that's not usually that great either, I'll but that sponge. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, um, but most of the time, when it happens, it's, you know, it happens to the, the best people, the yeah. people who deserve it the most. I yeah. Think. So. Uh, so he's dead. Um, yeah. Let's talk yeah. about the, the aftermath, the ghost of Marion Parker, if it will. Um, so, so, okay. Murder ballads were a popular thing at the time. Is that mm -hmm. what? Oh, there's, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, they're still around some. But yeah. back in the, uh, well, dating back to like the 1700s and into the 1800s, um, you had a lot of murder ballads, especially in rural areas. Mm -hmm. This was, I'm surprised there are some, um, I did, I put the murder ballads in the book just because it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, when Renee Cruz and I wrote, um, fear the reaper, mm -hmm. our book about the farm and rural murders, yep, I have it. we, we put quite a few of the murder ballads in there because a lot of them happened in the South. There's a lot of them in, out of the South and that was a popular form of entertainment. I mean, people, wanted to hear about these things. I mean, you're getting into the Woody Guthrie and before kind of era. Yeah. Um, I mean, Woody Guthrie did a lot of them about um, like coal mine disasters, um, union massacres, things like that. Um, they were a very kind of a social history kind of thing. Um, it was a, it was a way for people who maybe didn't have access to the newspapers would hear about, you know, some of the song would hear it through song mm -hmm. about some of the things that happened. There are tons and tons of them. Um, I've seen some entire books. I've got a couple of old books that are nothing but murder ballads mm -hmm. um, of, of things that happen. And this was a case that did have a few songs that were written about it. It was a cultural thing in the 1920s and before it's it started to die out um once the news became more prominent once radio became a lot came along more mm -hmm. people could get access to almost instant news i mm -hmm. mean not like today sure but more instant than you could have you know prior to radio right um you know newspapers were a thing newspapers have been around since this country started but a lot of times, a lot of places didn't have access to newspapers. So, murder ballads were one of those things that, that I I could do a I could do a whole. Oh you, you got to stop gears, me. The gears. You got to stop me. I could probably do an entire episode on murder ballads. So let's let's just move on. Sure. Just know they were a thing. Okay. So so the case faded, but everyone involved in the case was essentially haunted by Marion in some way. Perry Parker dies 16 years later. His wife 19 years after that. Uh, we never hear from Marjorie about this, she at least on the record. About it. 
um, which I, I guess I can't blame her. No. Marvin Wolf was working on a book about crime in L.A. He knows someone who knows someone who owns the Parker House. He reaches out, um, gets a hold of a woman named Michelle Pelland, who knew nothing of the story, but she did know about a ghost. <laughs> right. <laughs> which like, makes the story that much better, yeah. in my opinion. She's like, oh, well, that explains why right. our house is haunted. But she doesn't, yeah. seem, doesn't seem freaked out, no, really. No, you know, none any, of them are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she and her friends pooled their money to buy this house because they said they got a good feeling from the house, which is which is nice. Uh, they'd hear people on the stairs or walking around, but this is, again, very Casper the Friendly Ghost mm-hmm. kind of thing, which mm-hmm. is which is nice. And it says, um, you know, if the like once their dog even got spooked and ran away and never came came back which that is sad but um dishes and such move about you know little kid kind of uh, conniving spiritual things that happen said it's a benevolent spirit she was convinced it knows when somebody is afraid and then it stays out and when they first spoke it was the week of the anniversary of the kidnapping all the lights started going on and off in the house and you said that was all that she ever wanted was to go home and it looks like after all these years she finally made it so not a happy ending, but hell, it could well, have ended a, on a I way mean, it's, worse it's, note. Yeah, it's it's a horrible story. It's a horrible two-parter, uh, but at least it does end on a somewhat positive note. Yeah. Yes, you have a dead little girl, but on the other hand, at least you know in the afterlife, she seems to be content to be at home where she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a it's a sad ending to a very sad story. Uh, but let's be honest, this season's full of them. Yep. I mean, Hollywood really, you know, despite the movies, these Hollywood stories usually do not have happy endings. Uh-huh. Um, and I know you're convinced that I hate Hollywood, but it's not true. <laughs> He's got a vendetta. I, no, I don't. I really, <laughs> I really like it, and I really like L.A., but yeah, I mean, we can't, we focus on, we focus on the, the dark stories because that's what we do. Yeah. I don't want to um, do a happy there podcast. Are, no, there are it. plenty of, there are plenty of people who do make it and, and go on to have a good life in Hollywood, but they just seem to be few and far between. Sure. I don't know. I mean, they're I not, it. their stories aren't that interesting, I guess. I get so. it. I get it. Um, all right. Now I want to give a couple shout outs to our, uh, our latest, uh, supporters on Patreon. So that again, it helps the show sound better and it helps us keep doing what we're doing. So just want to give a shout out to Renee, Mark, Laura, Cara, Alexi, Steph, Gregory, and Sherry. So thank you very much for supporting the show. You can find out what you can get at American, uh, sorry, patreon.com slash American hauntings. Uh, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American hauntings podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I wanted to just give a quick shout out uh, to Mark Voorhees. Um, he, again, you know, friend of the show. <laughs> friend of the show. Um, again, call it audio issues. Um, basically, he wrote a long email oh. last week or two, two, an episode ago talking about a widower. I asked the question if somebody, you know, murders their oh, wife. Yeah, or yeah, widower. Yeah. He's basically, long story short, doesn't matter how they die, uh, you're a widower. He said, also, if you're Googling this, your wife might be concerned. <laughs> So yeah. just a heads up. Yeah. Um, so if you are, yeah. Do you call yourself a widower if you murder your wife? Right. Um, Why are you looking this up? Apparently you can, yes. but yeah, yeah. Not the Google history you want to have in your computer if the police arrest you. For exactly. Anything, if your wife mysteriously vanishes. Yes. So we got a couple of emails here. So this first one's titled "Awesome Podcast." Uh, this is from Angie, and it says, "I recently discovered your podcast, and I'm completely hooked. I turn on an episode every time I get into my car. Hope to be able to attend an event soon, as I live in Indiana." Keep up the great work. Oh, yeah. Indiana, there's no excuse. You're, it's you're so close. barely away. From Come to there. the conference. Yeah, you're you're not even far away. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, this next one's titled uh, Follow-Up from Season 5, Episode 10. This is from Christina. What was episode 10? 
<laughs> it was Babes of uh, Oh Inglewood. Yeah, believe. yeah, yeah. Okay. It says first of all, uh, no, that's fine. It says first I've of slept all, since then. I you know. yeah, right. Just in one, yeah, it's just gone. Yes. Uh, first of all, tell Lisa that the girl from Haunted New Orleans Dinner Night with the Cruise Story says hello. It says second, Troy, if you enjoy Spanish rock, um, Enrique. Oh, I do. Bunbury, uh, Bunbury was in a group prior to going solo called Heroes del Silencio. Okay. Also, another phenomenal group to check out is War Cry. War Cry definitely has an 80s rock sound, but I love their music. Both of these groups are from Spain. Lastly, check out Mana. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. They're from Mexico. They are also a great rock group. I hope you enjoy them as much as yeah, I do. Yeah, but I'd, I'd love that stuff. Awesome. I, know, I don't know how we got on the topic of this. I can't remember episodes, either. I know but, we did. Uh, we did, and uh, somebody had already sent me uh, a recommendation, and I... I've got him on a okay. playlist. Nice. I, I like that stuff. I nice. Just do. And she finishes saying, sorry, Cody, I got nothing for you. Uh, <laughs> wait, try Screwball PB Whiskey and Strawberry Purse for a PB&J Jello shot. Yes, or, that we have shot. those at the bar yep. at the hotel. We do. Yes. And it's, the shot's very tasty. Nothing <sighs> podcast related. I'm still really enjoying it, though. Your yeah, Wisconsin this is nothing, po- no, nothing podcast related, but that there's a peanut butter cup shot yes. that they have here at the bar that's that screwball whiskey it's really good and with chocolate and i like it so much i've gotten them to make it for me just as, as a, like a, a on the rocks yeah. drink it's so good <laughs> nice uh we've got a couple couple more here um we do, we get this one a lot but it's basically nola recommendations from jessica oh they're heading down to new orleans next month yep. um prep trying to do homework before they go found your podcast quickly became a favorite loving season four can't wait to circle back with the other seasons you talk about tours are great but haven't mentioned which ones you like we oh, have yeah, we have oh, we have <laughs> You may not have gotten through that episode yeah. or that season all the way, but but we get we do. this question a lot. And yeah. I tell everybody that if you're going to New Orleans, that the only tour worth taking, the company worth taking, as far as ghosts and stuff goes. I mean, there's other things. Yeah. But if you're taking a ghost tour or a vampire tour or anything like that, always go with haunted history tours. Yep. Um, I have known one of the owners there for almost 30 years. And uh, it's a top-notch tour company. They have great guides. Mm-hmm. We always have fun. There's Those are the people we always use when we go down. Um, I mean, of course, ours are like all of our friends, and we're just drunk. And I, it's, I so, miss it's, it so it's, much. I know. Next year. I know. Uh, I know we said that. You know, know. we we already had all our plans made for 2020, had to cancel everything. Yeah. And then this year, it's still not. I just don't. Uh, Yeah. I don't want to sink it in this year. But 2022, we're back. That's our year. We're back, baby. Yeah. So so. but anyway, yeah, that's who I would recommend. Um, You know, there are other tours that are fun to take, like the um, you can go to the uh, Mardi Gras float graveyard Mm. Uh, it's a fun tour uh, where you could see all the floats from past years where they've got them stored um there's you know uh, some of those airboat tours you can go out and see the alligators and stuff yeah uh, if you want i don't usually get that far (laughs) uh but you know as far as taking ghost tours and cemetery tours and that kind of thing just go with haunted history tours they're they're getting back up and running again like we all are yep um and by the time you guys go down i'm sure they'll style they'll have stuff going i I think Mm -hmm. they already have had um so that's who i would recommend Mm -hmm. um Awesome. Know, if you want a hurricane, go to Pat O'Brien's. If, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we've got plenty of, you know, listen to that that season before you go because yeah. I think it's a lot of recommendations in that yeah, season. Definitely. So. Yeah, have fun, Jess. Let us know how you yeah. like it. Yeah. Uh, couple, just two more here, quick ones. So this this one's titled You Guys Are Unique. This is from Josh. It says, hi, guys. Wanted to reach out and let you know how much <laughs> I like your podcast. Unique is one of those words quote, that you unquote. never know what that means. Right. Uh, one of the best things about you guys is the topics are unique. A lot of other podcasts cover the same subject 
over and over again. Uh, the Queen Mary or Greyfriars Kirkyard ETC. And I've heard them so many times that I feel like I could be the tour guide. You guys cover some very unique topics and subjects I've never heard of, so it always makes it interesting. I love New Orleans season, and Troy, the first season is not that bad. Anyway, thank you both for doing what you do. I plan on becoming a Patreon member in the very near future. I hope you guys are doing well. And he says, this episode of the American Pahonics Podcast, dot, 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 just, kid- just kidding. Stay safe, Josh. Uh, this last one is for, it's titled International Ghost. It's from Ian. It says, hi, guys. I'm from the UK and found the podcast by accident know, on Saturday, and I'm already on season two. Would you guys consider doing a run of ghost stories from across the pond? No. Keep it up. Stay spooky. You don't want to do American anything. American Hauntings. Oh, shit. Yeah. I forgot. Kind of throws I forgot that the name. off. But okay. So, okay. So maybe we start we a podcast some, company. Maybe we can have some, like, guests. You know, we could we could get like our friend Richard Estep on yeah, or something. Yeah. So that way we'd Ooh. have his accent or so, something. Right. So, oh yeah, we would need that. So we yeah. st- so we start a podcast network and we do Hey, UK... speak, hey but speaking of that, uh-huh. let me recommend a podcast mm-hmm. to everybody. And it is speaking of a UK podcast. It's called The Battersea Poltergeist. Hmm. And there's eight episodes and it's about a poltergeist case from uh in the UK in uh nineteen fifty six is when it starts. And they do it, they have like um, some current like experts who are listening to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Karen O'Keefe is really great in it. Um, and they have people who are listening to the show that are kind of working this through the story. And then the, the story from the 50s is told from the files of a guy who was a, uh, a paranormal researcher who was there at the time. And mm-hmm. they're telling it. But it's, it's like a drama play oh, okay. with actors doing those parts it's really really good mm-hmm. um but it's and it's not like i said it's not long but it's called the battersea poltergeist okay and i cannot recommend it enough i binged the whole thing uh last week nice. i listened to the whole thing all right and uh it's really well done and uh, i really i really i tweeted about how much i recommended it so awesome if people saw it on my twitter it's uh it's really good and it's definitely worth Definitely worth listening to. Nice. I really like it. All right. Well, yeah. So. Thanks for that recommendation. Yeah. Then um, yeah. you got one over there. What do you got? Well, again, I have, a po- I have a telegram nice. that I received. Um, you know, that's been in like an ongoing thing yeah. with us. And I, I'm sure some of you guys who've been listening for a while know that we've talked a lot about telegrams. And, you know, we thought that it was something that was non-existent anymore, mm-hmm. that telegrams were gone. There are no candygrams anymore, apparently. Well, no, I think there are, because I think Lisa sent a couple of candygrams out to a couple of listeners. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. forgot about that. Right. Uh, but I don't think there's one where, like, a shark comes to deliver it. Sure, so that's sure. where we got onto a tangent there. But I actually got a telegram at the office the other day. And it says, hi, Troy, I just finished listening to the Hollywood Mobsters episode. And as I listened all the way to the end, I heard you wanted a telegram. So here you are, a telegram. Mm -hmm. The podcast is great. I usually wait for a few episodes and then binge listen. I plan on reading all your books, but must start with the very first book. Well, Crystal, sweetheart, that's probably not going to happen. I don't know where you would find that, but okay. What was your first book? Uh, yeah, Haunted Decatur, and I'm uh. not sure they're available much anymore. But right. anyway, well, not the very first sure. ones. But anyway, I hope you, I hope to attend the Haunted America conference, but I'm in Canada, so it might be a while. Thanks, Crystal. P.S. Hi, Cody. Oh, so hello. You got a shout out, Crystal. There. So hey. yes, Crystal sent us a telegram, which was Aww. pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. I got that at the, you know, the door to the office, and I thought, what the hell? And uh, yeah, an actual telegram. That's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, they are still out there. They they you still can get telegrams. So that is good to know. Yeah. Uh, 
Hmm. So. I'm just going to start sending those people as pranks. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all I got. All right. Well, good deal. All right. Well, let's wrap this baby up. Um, I know it's a long episode, so guys, thank you for sticking around for the entire thing. Uh, now I'm giving you permission to just quit now. <laughs> stop now. Don't listen any further. Um, it, it's been a very long episode. There was no reason to go any further. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Yep. Bye. I'll start and packing up. That's the this end. episode of the American Hauntings podcast is written by Troy Taylor. I'm never going to stop doing this. I know you're not. And I know by me, not. Cody Beck. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we hope you'll check it out on a bi-weekly dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Apparently the Stitcher. subscribe thing is very important. Yeah. So um, if you're just oh, yeah. like listening, yes. you've got to subscribe. Yeah, basically. And make your friends subscribe. Even if they never listen, yeah. make them subscribe. It's, Apparently that's a it's thing. It's all about the iTunes. We algorithm. had no idea. Yeah, subscription's so. a big thing. Uh, so you can see the website at AmericanHongspodcast.com for well, more info. Did you about say the show. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher? Or did you say those? I started to, yeah. Or oh, anywhere sorry. you li- Did I interrupt? Yeah, sometimes I lose my place. It's the weirdest I thing. I don't it's know how somebody that else is talking over me. I know. Um, yeah, show notes, photos, links, and more. Uh, if you're if you are a regular listener, we hope you'll take the time to review us on the Apple Podcast app and we're share the so show with close. your friends. You said we're so close to how many are we? We're at like we're like nine seventy four. Oh come on! As far as ratings go, there's got to be twenty six people who've not left a review. Just even if you don't listen on iTunes and you've got an Apple phone, just go there and do it anyway. Yeah, put anything in. Just give us a review. You don't even have to review it, do you? No, No, can't you just hit the stars? Yep. You don't even have to write anything. It's twenty six people. Come on. We would appreciate it. Um, Let's see. So share it with your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass in the street. Yes, make them do it. If you've already done it, make someone else do it. Make a stranger do it. We couldn't and wouldn't do the show without you. If you're a fan, then you also know that American Hauntings is not just the podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. Did you notice I did not mention the conference at all this you didn't. episode? You I didn't, didn't because uh, someone will inevitably bitch about the fact that I mentioned the conference. But <laughs> we are deal. having it. It's a big it deal. It is happening for sure this year. It's at the end of July. And... We've already worked out all the metrics with the state and everything. So nice. that's why I keep pushing everybody to get vaccinated. Because if you're vaccinated, you don't count Yeah. in the count right. of how many people right. come. So it's going to be awesome. And we are having it. And we have like 35 seats left. That's it. That's the other reason I didn't mention it. It's uh, because we're almost sold out. Fair enough. But listen, if you're thinking about coming, man, do it. Sign up. Get signed up. Awesome. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you're good for those. No, you're not sorry. For those of you, uh, totally you who write and tell us that you wish we posted shows more often, well, you can have fresh content if you support the show on Patreon. That's not the only perk you that you'll get either. Yeah, that was a good episode. episode. Uh, there are discount shirts, stuff in the mail, all kinds of things. For those who don't understand how important our Patreon is to us. Do one about angels and how... Uh, all the I, things we know about angels I would not like in the Bible. That. I would like that. Go back and listen to the first season uh, and then listen to this one. Yeah, that's right. Patreon is what made it all get better. So check out check that out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. First season. If you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us, we're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, messages in a bottle, carrier pigeon, and the aforementioned Actually, Telegram. Actually, Telegram, for real. Yeah. Yes, so until next time. Goodbye. So long. See you later. Bye. All right. That was fun. Yeah, with a minute and a half to spare, if you wanted to keep your 3.30 uh, time on. Oh, we're fine.